Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hello everyone, Ron Spomer, Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. I would like to start off this podcast by mentioning a book that is really telling an interesting tale about great conservation work. You often hear me talking about the sustainable conservation wildlife management programs in Africa, and this book covers one in depth. Uh, I highly recommend it. Bringing Back the Lions is about Kutata 11 at Zambezi Delta Safaris in Africa, in Mozambique. And in the last 25 to 30 years of hunting management on this vast area, 500,000 acres, they have brought wildlife populations back to pretty much full density. And this is coming from virtually wiped out. Several species were wiped out. A buffalo were down to about a 1,200 in the whole area, and now they're up to 25,000. They have so much game back on this hunting block that they were able to reintroduce lions. And this book by Mike Arnold outlines that whole program and tells how it happened and how it can happen around the world. And I think the more of us who read, understand, and know about this, the more we can influence that sort of sound wildlife conservation and sustainable use of nature's resources. It really is the only way we're going to maintain hunting into the future, as well as, of course, wild places and wild animals. So if you get a chance, Bringing Back the Lions by Mike Arnold is a great read. Okay, now we've got some... uh, Comments here, these are sort of corrections, people straightening me out. (laughs) And this is from Peter, who says, hey, Ron, I absolutely love your content. He's buttering me up. I work for Krager Barrels. We're in Richmond, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's a famous high-end barrel manufacturer. A lot of folks love Krager Barrels. Well, Peter says, we make single-point cut barrels, and a good part of our work is to test barrels for foreign and domestic use. I personally, with one other co-worker, do the chambering and all other services on our barrels, including porting them for transducers. Now, that transducer is a way to measure pressure. So he's going to get into pressure here, I imagine. A transducer is used to measure all pressure. What did I tell you? With Sammy Spec Centerfire Rifle Cartridge pressure barrels, the center line of the transducer is 0.175 inches behind the shoulder of the cartridge. Well, I've got a cartridge here, so we'll look at that. So imagine in the chamber of a rifle, here is the shoulder, and one 0.175 0.175 inches behind that, he drills a hole to put the trans 
transducer to measure the chamber pressure when that cartridge goes off. For NATO and SIP barrels, that's CIP, the transducer is placed right at the end of the throat of the cartridge. So that would be right where the bullet meets the cartridge, the mouth or the throat, um, where the bullet sits. Many of the NATO and SIP pressure barrels also have a second transducer roughly between 11 and 15 inches down the barrel from the breech face. From the breech face, okay, about 11 inches, that'd be about right here. So they've got two spots where they're measuring it. Thought you might enjoy some insider information about how and where pressure is measured on test barrels. Keep putting out the great content. Oh, hey, thanks for that, Peter. I knew that those were different between the SAMI and the SIP. Um, and then, of course, NATO, I'd forgotten about, but they also measure and they do it differently. So it's good to know why we come up with these different numbers. They vary slightly because they're measuring those pressures at different points. Well, thanks for that, Peter. But here's one from Kyle who says, hey, I could be wrong, but I thought the 378 Weatherby case was based off of the 416 Rigby and not the 404 Jeffrey. And I said, I thought it might've been off the 404 Jeffrey. And now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think either one of those is right. If I recall the 378 Weatherby case, I think came after the 460 Weatherby Magnum case. And that one is an absolute monster. And as much as I remember, that was made of a whole cloth. Weatherby just said, hey, let's design this thing from the ground up. I think he was inspired by the dimensions of the 416 Rigby, but they're not exactly the same on the rim and the head and the body size. So I think we're both wrong on that one, Kyle, but thanks for bringing it up and jogging my memory. Now, here's one from someone called Fudge Pie, and I think we've read something from him before. Uh, at any rate, he says, hey, Ron, I can't comment about the rest of Africa, but it is illegal to use shotguns for hunting antelope in most provinces in South Africa. Well, that's interesting. I thought that it probably was acceptable over there and done, but apparently not. He says that there's an exception and it is in the KwaZulu-Natal where it may still be legal to shoot bushbuck rams and common reedbuck rams on driven hunts. It's a bit of a throwback to the British colonial past and shotguns were considered safer than having a line of hunters waiting <laughs> with rifles. Yeah, on a group hunt, you're probably uh, wanting to have a short range tool right there. Then he goes on to say, shotguns are considered unethical for antelope hunting due to the poor shot patterns and high rate of wounding. Now, isn't that interesting? Here we have so many states, uh, especially in the Midwest, that mandate shotguns for deer hunting. And now here's another government entity saying they're just not, they're not trustworthy enough on the accuracy. It's unethical to use them in that country. That's uh, really interesting. And then this touches on something else I talked about in a recent podcast. The states over here have so many different and seemingly conflicting regulations. It's just interesting what people come up with for ideas on how to manage this stuff. So, Fudge Pie says the provincial conservation and wildlife authorities are in the process of overhauling 
and I suspect the use of shotguns for hunting antelope species will be banned completely. Shotguns are, however, often used with slugs for hunting bush pig in combination with dog packs. Bush pigs are not classed as ordinary or protected game, and most hunting is on farms where they're doing damage to crops, especially the maize and sugar cane. So the professional game croppers also use them when culling from helicopters. So, yeah, that seems to fit. A lot of uh, culling work from helicopters, they use shotguns. I think it's easier to get a pattern on the animal with a shotgun rather than a rifle, although I've seen some pretty good rifle shooters working out of helicopters, too, for culling work. So thanks for that, Fudge Pie. It's always good to get information about how things are done in other places, in other countries. So let's see what other sort of questions have come up that the team has found for me here. This is one from Frederico. Frederico asks, is it better to hold a rifle very tightly or more loosely? I think we covered this one before. Is it better to pull the rifle in mostly with the hand holding the stock or with the hand holding the barrel? Well, your hand should not hold the barrel at all because you're changing the vibration pattern on the barrel. That will change your accuracy. Your bullet might land higher or lower depending on where you hold the barrel and how much pressure you put on it. So hold the fore end stock. That's what it's there for. It, it protects your hand from a hot barrel if you're in the military shooting a lot and get a hot barrel. But for sporting purposes and for hunting, that's what you want to hold on to because that is isolating the stock and your hand grip from the barrel. So don't hold the barrel. But as far as your question of should that hand be pushing it back into your shoulder or should the grip hand be doing it? I think ideally the forend hand should be pulling the rifle back into your shoulder. You don't want a death grip on with your trigger finger because that influences the trigger finger. If you're squeezing really hard, you might jerk the trigger or push it, press it too hard and that sort of thing. You can also put torque into the rifle when you're gripping with your hand. And that's why you, a lot of times you will see people hold their thumb along the line of the stock rather than over the top of the grip. It reduces your control a bit, but if you've got Fairly light recoiling rifle, and you don't need a lot of control back there. Better to do the control up front on the fore end and then loosen your grip on the grip handle right here for your trigger control. That's the way I would play that one. All right, good question there, Frederico. This is from Sierra. Why shouldn't we use the heavy recoil technique for all rifles as there is a greater danger if you accidentally use a 22 technique on a heavy rifle? Also, learning two different techniques is not fun. Now, this, I think, harks back to one I did, a video I did explaining that you shouldn't with a kicking rifle, a heavy, heavily recoiling rifle, you shouldn't stand sideways like this. You often see the precision 22 rimfire shooters use this and then they'll put their elbow in and their chest like this to hold it and then it's a very light hold because there's no recoil but what you end up with with a heavy recoiling rifle even if you do grip and control the forend you're torquing your body when that shot goes off all that recoil pressure on your shoulder out here spins you around so better to get a little more squared up to the target and bring that rifle in against your chest. And so this gentleman, Sierra here, is suggesting, why should you learn two different techniques? Why even bother with that 22 technique? 
And I think the answer must be because it's the most accurate because the people who use it are these target shooters. And you'll see it with the Olympics with those big rifles and they have the mitts and gloves and things on their hands to control all this stuff. And that's why they do that. No, as a sport hunter and shooter, you do not need to use that technique. But I think if you do really, really want to be accurate in shooting a 22 rimfire, might be worth investigating. All right. You guys are coming up with some great questions today. This is from Al. Why use a suppressor on a muzzle loader? <laughs> well, I suppose for the same reason you'd use a suppressor on a centerfire rifle or a handgun, it's to knock the sound down. Um, and I know why not on a muzzle loader. I don't imagine they would work all that well because what happens with my suppressors, all those chambers that they have inside of that can, capture not only the hot gases to reduce the muzzle blast, but they build up carbon and that's coming down the barrel in those gases. So they will eventually get dirty and some sometimes rather soon and uh, they do not function as well. You need to clean them out. I do believe that in some of the earlier models, you couldn't really clean them. They were all enclosed. You couldn't open it to clean things out. And then they didn't last very long, essentially. But with a muzzle loader as dirty as black powder burns, I don't know how many shots you would get before your suppressor would have to be stripped and cleaned. So you might want to look into that. I am not an expert on suppressors and I have not taken them apart. I've seen a few of them in pieces. So I know that some of them do come apart for cleaning. So, but that's why you would use them on a muzzle loader. You just don't want to hear that loud blast and hurt your ears. All right, Nick. Nick asks Ron, for a hunting caliber, is it wrong or simplistic to treat accuracy as the foremost consideration? The most powerful projectile out of the most expensive rifle is worthless if it misses entirely or wounds the animal. <laughs> Bingo, Nick. <laughs> you have nailed it. Too many of us dote on velocity and bullet weight and punch down range and all this stuff. <laughs> then we miss. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't do you much good. Um, but I am seeing in the comments I am getting from folks, it seems to me that most of us have tumbled to this idea. We really do get it. And so many of us are now saying, hey, job number one is to put that bullet where you want it, where it needs to go. So accuracy, precision shooting, that definitely is your foremost consideration. Because as we've often said, even a 22 long rifle bullet in the right place can take down a polar bear and even an elephant. It's been recorded as having happened, but we don't say now that you should go deer hunting, elk hunting, or bear hunting with a 22 rimfire. But the idea is right there. It is the precision placement of that projectile that does the job. So, yes, definitely. I would uh, go with a smaller caliber and handle the recoil to shoot precisely rather than try to wrestle your way through a big hurting magnum that you can't shoot that well. Yeah, that's a classic. As I said, all of these are good ones. I don't know what you guys have been drinking here lately, but you're coming up with some great questions. Hey, everyone, if you would like to see more by me and some of my friends, we are writing blogs on ronspomeroutdoors.com. That website has been around now for, gosh, a good 12 years probably. And we've just got reams and reams of blogs in there on all the things we discuss on our podcasts and our regular YouTube channel. So if you get a chance and you want to dive into more of the where, why, when, and how of ballistics and guns and 
ammunition and bullets and what they do and why they do it and some hunting tales and whatnot, you might want to check out ronsbomeroutdoors.com website. At your leisure, free for nothing. We'd love to have you. Mike, what do you've got here, Mike? Can you please brush us up on one of the phenomenon of projectile jump? Aerial gunners are taught to change their point of aim because the velocity of wind impacting a projectile from the side when firing a gun will impart either an upward shift or a downward shift on the projectile. Can you share what you know about it? Boy, this shouldn't take long <laughs> because I don't know all that much about it. First of all, I've never shot out of an airplane, uh, so I don't know what's going on there. But I do know that there there is something called projectile jump or bullet jump in relation to airflow. And it gets really pretty complicated when you get into the details. Not necessary to know this stuff for classic traditional hunting distances. This has only really come up because, well, outside of the military, it has come up because of long-range shooting. Beyond a 1,000 yards, these sorts of things rather obscure, but they become extremely important because you do get some unusual movements of your bullets based on the gyroscopic spinning of the bullet in relation to any sort of external forces, which is going to be wind. And I, I again, do some research on this, guys, but I do want to bring it up enough to get you thinking about it. And then you're welcome to write in with details and et cetera, et cetera. But it's a little bit difficult for me to explain it precisely because I don't know it precisely. But here's the rough idea. And Someone, I think it was Dave Emery, did a good explanation one time about this thumb finger rule sort of thing. He holds his hand like this without the bandages on the end of his cracked fingers. Um, and here's what it represents. This is the bullet's line of flight leaving the gun. This finger represents a side force uh, from the wind. So you launch your bullet and here is the wind blowing at a right angle from the right. Now, you've got something going on already with your bullet, which is the spin drift. The uh, the barrel's twist rate, the rifling, is spinning your bullet to the right in almost all rifles these days. Right-handed spin, and that already gives that bullet a little bit of shift at the tip and some yaw built into it. So when it travels down range, well, here's a bullet. It's not going perfectly point on. It's because of the spin and we're talking 200, as much as 300,000 revolutions per minute out of a fast twist bullet. So it's wanting to just tip its point a little bit to the right. And then it's flying down range, not perfectly straight. And this is influencing a little bit of direction called spin drift off to the right. Now, if you hit it with that crosswind at the same time, what happens, and the reason I have my thumb up here is that there's a right angle response to this. It seems really weird to me, but this is what the experts tell me. That pressure is making that bullet go this way. So you get a little bit of lift in your bullet. Very tiny, but again, after a thousand yards, it starts to add up. So you get a little bit of lift. Now, if it were left-handed, or let's say, let's say you're shooting out in the mountain country and there's an updraft coming up the mountain or under a cliff you're on. Now you've got that same position of your hand. Here's your bullet. Here's the force. Now the force is coming up underneath the bullet when it leaves the bore. And it's going to push it to the right. 
as that bullet goes downrange. This is why I say this stuff is a little bit confusing (laughs) and you need to really study it. But that's my basic understanding of what's going on with this jump. Now, another bullet jump is the often referred to as bullet jump is the bullet leaving the cartridge in the barrel, in the chamber. There's a bit of free space, uh, whether we call it free bore, before the bullet touches the rifling. So you've got the throat in the chamber. That's a little bit bigger than the bullet. And then you've got the rifling in the full diameter bore. So that bore diameter is going to touch the bullet. It's going to engrave in the rifling. The empty space in there in the throat is free bore. And they'll call that bullet jump. Do you want your bullet to jump across 0.50 or 0.30 inch before it engages the rifling? People tweak that to improve the accuracy of particular loads when they're working on some real precision target loads. So, yeah, there are a lot of phrases like bullet jump and projectile jump and all this stuff. So you could be meaning different things, but because you're talking about projectile jump and shooting out of a an airplane, aerial gunners. Yeah, I'm assuming you're referencing these things that happen with the wind as well as the spin drift of the bullet. And then if you really want to mess your mind up, go with Coriolis effect to boot. You got to figure all that stuff in on long range shooting, which is why it's really kind of a specialty. People who really get into it and like this sort of arcane information and dealing with it all really enjoy that stuff. And I'll have to admit the times that I've worked with trained long range shooters and uh, followed the directions and done some thousand to uh, one mile long shooting it really is kind of crazy to see those bullets or hear those bullets hit at those distances and many times you can see the bullet trace and i'm telling you those guys go way up in the air in order to reach the target a mile away so it's pretty interesting stuff all right here is one from uh, Kevin. Kevin asks something, eh, more stuff about ballistics the way it looks. Hey, back in the day, I used a ballistics software program called Remington Shoot, but it has since gone away. Uh-huh. There are some other ones out there, but they all seem to be very complicated. True. We were just discussing some of the reasons why they're so complicated. I'm wondering if you know of an easy to use and reliable ballistics program that an average Joe like me can use. Yeah, there are several of them um, of varying value, I think. Most cartridge ammunition manufacturers will have one like like Remington had um, and they may be putting another one up now but I think you'll find one I know you'll find one from Hornady Hornady Hornady.com has a good ballistics calculator one of the more advanced one Um, I think Sierra Bullets does they used to sell those on a disc for your computer but I think now you can access that online I use one quite often called Shooter's Calculator. I think it's Shooter Calculator or ShootersCalculator.com. And another one, JBM uh, Calculator. Look those up. Those are complicated, but there are some simpler versions of them. But you really do need to dive into the complicated part. Most of them will have how to use the information in there. You click on that, you know, they'll have a, a phrase Uh, like bullet jump or wind deflection or something that you might not recognize or understand. And if you click on it, it will give you an explanation. This refers to what happens at the blah, blah, blah. And then you begin to understand and it'll start to make sense. 
Because the reason they are that complicated is because this whole program is fairly complicated. Ballistics is not, I don't think, a simple science. There are so many things that go into it. But once you do figure those calculators out, then it all starts to make sense. And you start to look at the trajectory tables and you can make changes and adjustments that reflect real world conditions and real world shooting. And you get better and better at understanding it and applying it in the field. And it's really kind of fun. So you'll have things in there like minute of angle adjustment, measurement numbers. It won't just say it drops so many inches. It will say it will drop so many minutes of angle at that distance. And then another one is it will drop so many mil radians at that distance. Different people like those different systems. They're all in there. You don't have to pay a lot of attention to them. You can just go with inches or MOA or mil, whatever you like. But yeah, that's why they're so complicated. But I think it's worth digging in. But look for the simpler ones from the ammo makers. Winchester, probably Federal, um, you name it. Maybe Nosler's got something up there. Most of the bullet aftermarket hand loader bullet types will have uh, usually a chart up there, but they get fairly complicated too. But some of the simpler ones will just say, I, as, as I remember back in the day, and it may have changed now, Winchester had one that only applied to Winchester loaded ammunition. So you would look up a 25-06 Remington load from Winchester and it would give you the ballistics of that particular load. But you couldn't tweak things with your particular rifle that shot a little bit lower velocity or higher or a different weight bullet or things like that. So yeah, that's why they're pretty complicated. Thank you, Kevin. I hope that helps you out. Now, this is from Adam, and Adam uh, asks, I've been reading your articles and watching your videos for some time now, and I've come to appreciate your perspective and experience. Well, thank you for that, Adam. I try my best and don't always make it, as many of these responses uh, indicate, but I'm more than happy to clear things up when you guys clue me in. Adam goes on, I have been looking into a trigger tech primary for my Remington 700 after experiencing one on another rifle. What are your thoughts on aftermarket triggers on hunting rifles? And what is your recommended sweet spot regarding the balance between a perceived improvement and still keeping a safe pull weight in mind? All right. So essentially, what do I recommend for a trigger weight, a pull weight on your trigger? How much pressure? And what do I think about these aftermarket triggers? You know, we always say that one of the best improvements you can make for accuracy on your rifle is to change the trigger out to a better trigger. That said, I find a lot of really, really good triggers on factory rifles these days. You know, back in the bad old days, the good old days, we often had to take our rifles into a gunsmith to get the trigger worked on because they came with some fairly heavy triggers and some of them would drag. You'd pull and pull and pull and you'd feel some rough spots and finally it would break. None of that encourages accurate shooting. So we would take it in and get it honed and filed and set just right. And then they would adjust the pull weight to about three pounds. Some guys liked two pounds. Target shooters would like to go down to a pound. Ooh, that gets to be dangerous in the hunting fields. I had a test rifle sent to me one time where they had the trigger set at, I think, a a pound, which sounded really cool for accuracy. But when I took it hunting and had a glove on, kapowie! <laughs> my shot was anywhere but where it was supposed to go because I was just reaching for the trigger to start my trigger pull when it went off. So I recommend for a hunting trigger, at minimum two and a half pounds, but I prefer three. And 
I can get along just fine with four if it's crisp, if it doesn't have a lot of creep and a lot of after travel. And after travel is when you pull the trigger and it breaks. You don't need it to keep going for another inch or two. (laughs) It ought to stop just a tiny fraction after it's broke. Because what you want to train your finger to do is squeeze that trigger till it breaks and then it stops and your trigger finger stops too. You don't want to be going slap or yanking it back farther and then moving the rifle as you're coming back. So crack, it breaks like, as we always say, a little rod of glass, a sliver of glass. Suddenly the pressure just gone. That's what you want. But don't go down to two pounds, a pound and a half. I know some guys do it. And if you can train well, you can handle it, but it becomes dangerous when you get to be that light on your trigger. Um, So trigger tech. Oh yeah. I've used that primary trigger on a lot of custom guns and it is great. Um, Timney has some really nice aftermarket triggers and they're easy to put in a lot of rifles. You just knock a pin out, drop it in, replace it, bingo. And you've got yourself a three pound trigger or two and a half and adjustable. But again, study the factory rifles these days because most of them have improved their triggers considerably and they do come with adjustability. Back in the mm, probably the 80s, may have started in the 70s, they got real concerned about lawsuits because everybody was trying to drum up somebody complaining about a trigger and it caused them to do something dangerous and shoot something or somebody and get injured. So they were afraid of lawsuits and they always called them lawyer triggers, seven pound pull. (laughs) And I've seen them that bad. And that actually causes more accidents than a reasonable trigger weight because people just can't control the rifle. They're trying to get that darn thing to go off and they jerk on the trigger and everything else and are not accurate. So things have gotten a lot better since then. Um, Oh, one thing else I want to mention are these new, um, you can't call them two-stage triggers, but the ones that have a safety lever inside the trigger. Uh, Lightning Trigger, I think Mossberg calls it. Savage has it. AccuTrigger, they call it. It's been out for quite a few years now. The way those work is that it's a simple block of the sear or the trigger or the firing pin so that it cannot break and, and set off the shot. There's that little lever up inside of the action is in the way. And until you pull it out of the way and your finger gets back to the actual trigger shoe, then you pull the trigger and it will fire. But until you move that little lightly pulled lever in the center of the shoe, it cannot fire. There's a mechanical block up on the top of that. And that allows you to set the actual trigger brake fairly light without fear of it accidentally discharging because that block is there. Worth looking into. I find that those work pretty darn well. All right. So that's my recommendation on triggers for now. And that looks like the end of the questions, guys. So that will conclude another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. And once again, I thank you as usual for sending in your questions and your answers. And check out some of these books I've got lying here. We're getting questions from fans about what books to read this winter. And these are some good ones. But I really recommend that bringing back the Lions book because that is just such a wonderful conservation hunter inspired and funded, by the way, conservation success story and a great blueprint for wildlife conservation around the world. This is Ron Spomer on Otterson Shoot Straight. Mm-hmm.